Hello and welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host, Andre Degler. First of all, thanks a lot to everyone who participated in the poll that we shared on Twitter and LinkedIn last week about how you listen to this show. I am very happy to say that the results of that poll have sort of turned out about as we felt they would, and the show will be changing soon to give you more of what you want. Namely, you want more great interviews and you want more commentary on the European tech news. This is coming soon, so stay tuned. In today's episode, I would like to play you an interview that I recorded recently on Clubhouse with Lyubomila Yordanova, the founder and CEO of Plan A. In case you missed it, we are hosting the so-called TechEU podcast hangout events every week on Clubhouse or uh, since recently on Twitter Spaces, and the main idea here is to catch up with people whom we interviewed for the podcast earlier. So Lyubomila is a fascinating person to talk to, and she comes on our show for the third time, and you definitely have to listen to this interview interview to hear her takes on the influx of new impact VCs in Europe, about carbon offsetting issues, about greenwashing in the VC industry, and also great advice on how to hire the best talent for a growing startup, and so much more. So without further ado, let's check this one out. Welcome, everyone, to the TechEU podcast hangout event with Lubomila Yordanova, the co-founder and CEO of Plan A and the co-founder of Green Tech Alliance and so many other things. This event is being recorded, so I hope everyone's okay with that. Uh, this is our first foray into uh, recording our Clubhouse hangouts, and uh, later on we will release it on our podcast. So, Lubomila, we have talked for our podcast two times uh, so far in July 2019 at Pirate Summit. And then uh, in March 2020 at TechChill, which actually was the last uh, startup conference that uh, I attended. So after that, uh, the lockdowns came in and uh, I never got out of the house, really. So I guess a lot of stuff has changed uh, since then. But uh, can you maybe quickly go through milestones or whatever the most important stuff that's uh, happened to you and the company through the uh, through this period? It's really exciting that you mentioned the last conference. I believe the whole tech community has been to. That was Tech Chill in Riga. Uh, it was a fantastic event, uh, yet the last one in 2020. Uh, a lot happened since because I guess in a pandemic kind of setup, you have very little possibility to do much beyond working. So we ended up working a lot and uh uh, delivering a lot of hopefully value for many. Um, our clients seem to be happy. So, uh, yeah, I guess this is where a lot of the effort came in. A few milestones. So, first of all, and really importantly, uh, we launched the Green Tech Alliance. The Green Tech Alliance is now a community of close to 1,000 startups from all over the world that work in the green tech topic and are focusing on following science. Uh, we vet them, we select each one of them, and then they enter a community where they can get access to advisors such as Robin, uh, who essentially hear about their innovation and then um, essentially uh, can help them in one way or another. We have investors, press, uh, we have experts in science, experts in impact measurement, uh, and anyone that would be useful for a green tech startup. Uh, so this has been a huge milestone for us. Um, another uh, big milestone for Plan A itself has been the launch of our enterprise uh, software. Uh, so our software has always been focused on companies 
But now we focused a lot of our effort on uh, software as a service platform for decarbonization for enterprises. So we enable businesses to not only monitor their emissions, but also set targets uh, and then uh, decarbonization strategies that essentially can get them to achieve these targets. And then a final one, which is maybe more on the inside of Plane, more on the kitchen uh, kind of uh, level, yet quite impactful, is that uh, we we raised three million funding from SoftBank, Demeter, and Cooperian, uh, which is the reason why our team is now uh, forty people and is going to double by the end of the year. Wow, that's great. So you've just answered at least one uh, next question, because I remember that back in February 2020, you told me that you had a team of 10 people. So you have quadrupled since then. Is that is that so? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> well, that's a, that, that, that's a serious thing. And back then, you also said that you were still responsible for uh, all the financial stuff and also for HR, for PR and for sales. So are you still doing all these things or is it now, uh, have you found uh, more people for those? Thank you for remembering. Uh, this is a sweet uh, memory from the past. Thank God. Uh, we actually have uh, now people that are designated for all of these topics. Uh, I have been honored also within this year to be joined by uh, incredible people uh, such as Simon, our COO, uh, who comes from Volkswagen, Audi, and um, also a few scale-ups in Berlin who has now taken over the topic of uh, human resources, operations and finance. Uh, and then we just recently had a, PR, a senior PR manager. Uh, so I would say uh, now my hands are a bit uh, less tight and I can focus on what I love doing, which is uh, sales and uh, basically promoting Plan A uh, across channels. Right. Yeah, this is great. So yeah, this is a catch-up conversation, uh, uh, the whole idea uh, of it. And this is why I'm sort of uh, picking a little bit up uh, some stuff that you were uh, saying last time. And one of the things that I was really interested in is that, so that was February 2020, and you said in our interview that you would be able to talk about your upcoming funding round in the matter of weeks or maybe a few months. In fact, the funding was only announced a year after the conversation took place. So we talked in February, 2020 and the funding you announced in March 2021. What took you so long? It's a really valid question and actually one that most likely is applicable to many companies. Uh, we found ourselves in the beginning of COVID in a situation where all of a sudden a lot of investors panicked that the world was ending, that no one cares about sustainability. This was also one of the reasons why we found the Green Tech Alliance, because we were really concerned that if we're facing this, a company that is now five years old and has uh, been getting quite a lot of visibility, imagine what's happening for the smaller companies that just kicked off their journey and are excited to build sustainability companies. So essentially what happened within this one year was that uh, we experienced a summer of a lot of kind of shifting conversations, a lot of um, conversations got stopped, uh, some term sheets got pulled as well. Uh, and finally, uh, by the end of the summer, we had like really concrete preferences for a few investors that today have now, uh, you know, officialized their commitment to plan A, including SoftBank, Demeter and Cooperian, as I mentioned uh, and as you know, these journeys normally take a few months. But when we spoke in February, we were already with a few commitments. And these commitments essentially evaporated within a few short weeks because all of a sudden, supposedly, sustainability was not going to be important. 
Wow, that's uh, that's pretty big. So basically, none of the current investors were your planned investors a year ago. Well, uh, to be honest, like I know that destiny knows its job. So uh, <laughs> someone planned for it, and I'm really grateful and uh, happy because we have incredible investors on board now, and they're like really. They're business savvy, but they also have sensitivity for the sustainability topic, even though they're not necessarily sustainability investors, except Demeter, who invest in clean tech for a long time now. I guess we had commitments from investors that we believed would be appropriate for us. Uh, and instead, what ended up happening was that they clearly were not. And we had to do a bridge round from a few angels and then essentially restart discussions at the end of the summer when the waters were a bit more silent and there was more opportunity for discussions on a pragmatic level rather than uh, in this panic mentality. That was definitely what was happening in March 2020. Yeah, I can imagine. Also, in that interview, you said that the 2020 is going to be the year of sustainability. So was it after all, or did the pandemic uh, just mix everything up uh, with uh, how people think about it? It definitely was. And I'm happy that at least one of the things that I said was true. <laughs> is uh, um, uh, Joke aside, I think uh, 2020 was definitely the sustainability year. And it was driven by a few things that happened. On one hand, there was a regulatory framework. So we had uh, the Green Deal uh, in the EU. We had frameworks like TCFD in the UK and also UK with its continuous commitments and overachieving of its own targets. Only yesterday they, they announced that they're reducing, uh, they're setting their targets for reduction to 78%, which is phenomenal. Like it's mind blowing. And I'm really impressed by their efforts. And I'm really happy that we have so many clients also in the UK. And another thing that happened was that the pandemic was finally understood as a event that had a lot of predecessors that led to this culmination, which means that essentially we finally were able to recognize our responsibility as this part of the ecosystem rather than as this manager of the ecosystem, which is what we've been uh, assuming by essentially uh, overwhelming our planet with our exhaustion of resources. Right. And I also wanted to pick up on uh, something that uh, that you said last time. I didn't probably notice it because I would have actually asked you another question about in that interview, but I was listening back and uh, kind of kicked myself about it. You said that one of the things that you did when you just were starting uh, the company, uh, you went uh, uh, and listened to a whole bunch of online courses on sort of how to build a company and how to build stuff around a uh, startup. So can you just uh, uh, share your experience about it? Is it actually something useful? Is it actually something that uh, an entrepreneur could do to actually build a startup? Can you learn this kind of thing on the go? How did it work for you? I think it's a balance between uh, practical knowledge and also theory. Uh, startup journeys are not like one another. There's just so much going on each time and there's so many obstacles that you don't anticipate. Yet, I'm someone that likes to go prepared to a meeting, go prepared to like the next adventure or kind of challenge that is ahead of me. And I think that education is a key element in this. I spent one whole year before officializing my commitment to Plan A and launching the company to educate myself about climate change. And as much as I had startup experience, having worked in startups, worked in a VC in Asia and also uh, in the corporate side, uh, kind of having seen different realities, I felt like I still needed a bit maybe of a foundation where a structure can be added because 
as many of the listeners uh, would know, building startups, there's a lot of chaotic effort in the beginning. You're like so confused by all the things you need to do. There's like the legal element, oh, I need to register a company. There's also like the element, okay, how do I make myself visible? How do I test if this product that I'm developing is interesting for someone? And I guess the books were for me the opportunity to have something to go back to and test myself if I'm doing it right. But I really approached it in a systemic manner where I would use the knowledge that I had. I would ask a bunch of people about their opinion on climate change, but then I would also spend time on learning how to do, for example, I did like courses on UX. I did courses on um, uh, some like sustainability topics uh, in companies. Then I also uh, read a lot of books about lean analytics and so on. Just because I think, you know, when you're building a company, especially if you're the CEO, you have to be respectful to the differences in domains. And in the beginning, you're kind of doing all of it by yourself. So yeah, I guess this was my approach of making sure that I don't waste money on things that I can do myself and also respecting others that would join the journey later on. Are you still using this knowledge uh, to these days? Certainly, yeah. I go back to, uh, and I keep on giving this book to um, the people that join Plan A, is The Disciplined Entrepreneur. It's a book, actually, that was first a course in MIT. It's 24 steps to build a company. And it honestly is a phenomenal, very stripped down uh, read that allows you to see how you can tackle building a company in a step-by-step approach. Uh, I guess today I'm more doing rather than going back to the drawing board. But uh, this year, actually, I've decided to spend more time on upskilling myself. So I have the honor to be one of the responsible leaders uh, chosen by BMW. And BMW offers to a few, like to 10 people, uh, the opportunity to work with their executives uh, to solve one problem in a company where they teach you about tactics that they use in the big corporate. So I'm taking time for myself a bit more this year where I mm, do stuff on the weekend that would make me even better equipped for the next stage of Plan A, which is scaling. Right. And what is the problem that you are working uh, with that uh, BMW executive uh, on solving? Planet kind of got uh, invited to the enterprise, to the corporate table a bit uh, early on in our journey. Uh, it literally took us from the launch of the software six months until the first corporate was knocking on our door and wanting to do a pilot, which meant that we all of a sudden needed to equip ourselves with a lot of knowledge, but also fulfill certain requirements that we hadn't had the chance before to work on. With this in mind, uh, my concern or my uh, focus uh, topic is making Plan A the perfect partner for an enterprise. And even though we're already fulfilling on a technical level a lot of the requirements, because we've just started working with a bunch of these corporates, um, now we have a few hundred companies as clients, uh, still there's a lot that you can do further better to align in terms of timelines, align in terms of uh, product development and delivery of a service that would be for them something that is a given. And for us, is maybe, you know, a bit of a... Um, still extra step uh, at this stage. Right. Yeah. No, this is uh, th- th- this is really interesting. And uh, what I also wanted to ask uh, also about the uh, uh, funding and y- your plan uh, on uh, in- increasing the headcount, what uh, do you need these, uh, this money for and uh, uh, who are all the people that you're hiring? Like, uh, where are you expanding? 
So planning is based in Berlin, uh, but we are operating already across continents from Berlin, and that's sometimes a bit of a struggle uh, because you end up working at uh, hours that are normally designated for sleeping, uh, at least in the CET zone. Uh, so we're opening a few different shops this year. One is France, that's on the same time zone. Another one is the UK, uh, and then uh, the US is coming up by the end of the year. Uh, so that's where we're dedicating our efforts in terms of geographical expansion. When it comes to the um, skill expansion and how we're going to spend the money, it's a lot of data engineers, a lot of scientists. Uh, as you know, we have quite of a big focus on scientific knowledge in the team, and we already have a quarter of our team that come from this background. Uh, we're essentially planning on expanding on these two topics significantly, and of course, sales, because that's... Uh, kind of uh, where we are really active and there's a lot of uh, demand so we need to be able to digest uh, quicker and faster kind of better the the way we digest at the moment all the leads that we get that's that's some serious globalization planned and uh, can you also talk about what would be the most important hires uh, that you have that you have made so far something maybe that already has uh, uh, had uh, a, a big impact on the organization Certainly. I think there's quite a few uh, fantastic people that joined Plan A and uh, that is obviously the 30 and all the people that have joined uh, Plan A are amazing and we really spent a lot of time actually hiring. We found out that we've rejected close to 1,000 people <laughs> over the last few months, which is a bit shocking. Uh, but uh, in terms of the people that maybe I can just highlight uh, from the senior staff, we have um, Simon that I mentioned earlier. Simon is my right hand. He's someone that I work with on a daily basis, and he focuses more on the internal side of things where I'm kind of more focused on the commercial external side. Simon comes from uh, the corporate sphere. He's been in automotive. He as, was the right hand of the chief digital uh, officer of Audi uh, in Ingolstadt in Germany. Um, and then he moved to Spryker where he was the CEO there. Uh, we also have an amazing CTO, Oli. Uh, Oli is a four-time CTO. He sold his last startup to a hedge fund uh, where he was actually predicting the value of cryptocurrencies based on social media sentiment which is quite useful for uh, what we do, uh, not because we're getting into cryptocurrency. Uh, <laughs> that was my question now. <laughs> <laughs> but because we're predicting a lot uh, of values and uh, a lot of uh, kind of CO2 levels based on where the company is at the moment and projected revenue growth and all these kinds of things. So uh, this kind of skill set and machine learning capability as well is really useful. We also have since recently a CPO uh, because our product is becoming increasingly more complex. Uh, Nick comes from uh, Trivago. He was there for six uh, years and he was working directly with the CEO in a special team for special projects uh, as the product uh, uh, lead and as the kind of head of product. And uh, we also have our chief commercial officer, Janja Verhoeve, who is spearheading together with me the um, amazing work that we're doing in terms of re developing relationships with our clients. And someone else that joins in a few weeks, but uh, I guess it uh, can be announced. Uh, he comes from Stanford and uh, was uh, is Jacob. Uh, Jacob is uh, was for many many years in Via as the expansion uh, head and someone that launched hundred markets. He's going to be our VP of customer success. Uh, a lot of men, and I want to say it straight out because we're working really hard on uh, kind of adding women to the leadership. 
a lot of phenomenal men. I definitely can say that. Uh, and I'm super lucky to be able to work with them. And uh, we're now in the process of expanding further by also adding a bit more diversity on that senior level. Real sounds like an all-star lineup. And then, so then the question would be, how hard is it to sort of sell uh, this uh, startup to uh, these uh, a lot of uh, senior uh, senior people? Uh, what did you do, sort of? How, how did you how did you do it? What's the trick? Thank you so much for this question, because to be honest, no one ever asks. And I think it's a crucial one, especially for the green tech field, because many startups are um, going to be overflowed by uh, candidates in the coming year, just because the topic is going to become more and more important. But uh, the tactics need to be known already today so that you can secure this talent uh, without that much of a hassle. One thing that really helps and has helped Plan A is that um, we now have a brand that speaks for itself. And this is, I, I'm, I'm really humble. I don't care about this kind of, I'm really honored to have this visibility and I'm really honored for Plan A's mission to now be on the agenda of so many companies. But being blunt, like it really works to have uh, a brand that is recognized by um Organizations like yours, uh, organizations uh, like some of our clients, like Societe Generale, uh, like Atos. Um, and that's kind of a reference point that speaks to people. And especially if they come from the corporate or from the kind of scale-ups, unicorn uh, side, that requires for them uh, uh, less analysis to decide if they want to join. The second thing that really helps is smart people already in the team. Uh, we have quite of a complex uh, hiring process, even though a short one, but it's really intense because we always want to expose this candidate to as many people as possible from the company to see cultural fit. And honestly, not a single time when people speak to uh, someone uh, that is a candidate and uh, the opposite way, of course, when the candidate comes back to us and is like, oh my God, you have such an amazing team. People are just so intelligent and so driven and they're so aligned in terms of a mission. We spend a lot of time working on that. And I think this is something that is not a given if you have the money or you have the uh, idea Uh, this doesn't come naturally, even if you're the best person and you're really kind and you're super smart, you really need to like build this unit uh, of belief that to allow people to be aligned to you without even being in the team. So that's the second element. And then the final thing, which is probably like uh, the essence of the times we exist in now is the fact that sustainability is really becoming something really visible in the geographies where we operate. Um We have, uh, we're based in the German market, which, uh, as was explained by, uh, Robin during our event, uh, last week is clearly one of the hotspots of the topic at the moment in Europe. Uh, we have a regulatory system that is pushing for that. So people are seeing that this is going to become kind of a prime topic in decision making in businesses, which essentially allows them to see themselves as, uh, the, candidate that is building the future. So these three elements are what allows us to be uh, interesting for companies and uh, them three in combination, definitely. Right. And they also say that you as a, as a leader should hire people who are not similar, but different from you. So did that uh, succeed? Didn't do? Are all these people very different uh, from, from, uh, from you? Absolutely. I, I've remembered something from an event and I always repeat it to the team. Uh, a people hire A people, B people hire C people. This is like a cliche from an event I was at, but I think it's quite easy to grasp. I can be really good at many things, uh, but I am one person with 24 hours in the day and 
I do not think that the value of Plan A is only stuck with me. Uh, it's stuck with the first, the first employee with the second employee and everyone is kind of adding to the puzzle their own contribution. We're building a really complex product. We are combining science and technology into one coherent tool that allows corporates uh, to calculate, monitor, reduce, report on their emissions. So essentially setting their net zero strategies, uh, optimizing their whole process for data collection, which means that we need a big group of stars and rock stars in terms of what they do, who can add another perspective to the table and really build this product in a way that it speaks from a product perspective, from a tech perspective, from also a, you know, marketing perspective, branding perspective. And that is not the job of one person. And that is the job of many, many uh, super smart and uh, really driven people. Right. Yeah. No. That that uh, that makes a lot of sense. So I also wanted to ask uh, something else, something totally different. Uh, uh, I think over the past few months, even even weeks, uh, if we look at the news uh, agenda, we have seen this rise of uh, VCs in the tech space who are very much focused on uh, impact investing and the climate tech. And so there is much more of them right now than there were maybe like a year ago or two years ago. Do you see this trend? And uh, what, what do you think about it? Do you talk to these people at all? We actually work with them because we have a module on our platform that is solely dedicated to portfolio observation in terms of ESG and carbon accounting. So it's essentially a big E plus an S and a G, so to say. And we definitely see this uh, increase in numbers of the VCs that are focusing on the topic. Yet, in my humble opinion, there's still very little understanding of the space from the more traditional investors. Uh, I believe it was from your research uh, that uh, Robin presented last week, where it was really visible that big corporates were spending quite a lot of money into investing in the space. Uh, and they were followed closely by a bunch of big VCs, but not by the traditional uh, players that we've seen a lot on the market. So We see a lot of talking. We see very little depth in the thesis that has been developed by some of the more uh, traditional VCs that are going into the space. And then we see quite a lot of new ones that are solely focused on that and they're developing really comprehensive theses uh, that are with the scientific backing, with a deep understanding of which industries are really going to lead us to this decarbonization that we want to get to. So the market is moving, uh, but there's definitely a lot that needs to be uh, further strengthened in terms of depth of knowledge. And when you say there is this uh, lack of understanding of the field uh, by uh, many of traditional VCs, what do you mean by that? What's there to understand? I mean, if I... How can I explain the space in which we operate? Uh, we're trying to rebuild the world. <laughs> and it's not to say like that I'm doing it myself. It's basically uh, hundreds and thousands of startups that are working towards optimizing, improving the processes, the services, the products that we have to offer them in a more sustainable shape and form, which means that the way we've been doing things now, they're fantastic and they're optimized for increasing revenues. They're optimized for uh, better production, more efficient production, but they're not optimized for responsible care of our planet. And what we're facing ahead of us is essentially a climate crisis that on one hand is going to leave us without too many resources. On the other hand, is going to leave us with a very uncomfortable set of kind of uh, aspects of living uh, in terms of conditions. And it's also going to make people that are 
in an uncomfortable situation now, even more uncomfortable. Uh, and finally, is going to lead to a lot of unexpected shifts, be it in our supply chains due to natural disasters that are increasing in frequency and speed, or in terms of uh, unexpected uh, other disturbances, such as what we saw with COVID. So when you put this big picture uh, together, and then you think of the, the role of green tech, we have quite of a complex job to do in terms of using science, using technology to rework these processes. So if an investor is looking into the space, they cannot approach it with the same eye and with the same due diligence approach that is been given to them uh, for decades now. You need to have a different timeline. You need to have a different analysis of uh, the importance of hardware, which we know many investors are not interested in at this stage. You need to look into spaces which are heavily related to physical uh, assets, be it in agri-space. Um, you need to look into hybrid models, which are related to hardware plus software, a lot of IoT devices for monitoring impact, monitoring uh, performance. There's a different level of complexity, but also a type of knowledge that is needed to be acquired if you want to be the best investor in the space and to be able to spot these opportunities before anyone else. So... I think this is where it becomes a bit different and this is where maybe it's um, useful for investors to develop a new thesis that is a bit more adapted to what the startups can offer and what solutions are needed. Right, right. But at some point, when, as I was uh, watching uh, all these uh, new climate-focused VCs to appear, I thought, are we actually coming to a situation on the market when Pretty much every VC is an impact VC. Every VC is a climate VC. Everyone has this uh, uh, part in their thesis. Kind of, because at the end of the day, the only reason why no one has been investing in green tech up until now is because we have been removing the environment from the equation and any of the equations that we've had. When you would calculate your financial returns, you wouldn't look into the uh, capex that is related to natural disasters because at some point this was not at all uh, you know, a problem. Now, when all of a sudden factories and all of a sudden supply chains are disturbed and there's so much additional capital you need to put in order to secure your assets, you all of a sudden need to add this layer of analysis that is related to how successful will you be in a crisis situation related to climate change. So if an investor is uh, wanting to be prepared for the future, which is kind of what many investors want to be, they need to spend time on thinking about the topic because this is going to make them uh, actually future-proof. It's going to make them uh, the best in class because on one hand, they have the money, they have also the intelligence to know that they need to invest in the topic. And then on the other hand, they also have understood the timeliness of the issue that they're addressing. Right, that makes sense. And uh, just to, to uh, get to the final part of this conversation, and by the way, if if anyone in the in the audience uh, want to get up on stage and ask questions, please do raise a hand. That's uh, uh, something we always appreciate. And uh, in the meantime, you talked a lot uh, before in the previous interviews and uh, at the event uh, that uh, we held last week about uh, greenwashing. So we can talk about greenwashing itself, but I also wanted to ask, is it a thing for the VCs then if... Uh, this sort of climate part becomes so uh, widespread uh, in uh, in their theses. You mean greenwashing? Is it a thing for VCs? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
I'm not one to judge why someone put money behind someone. As we know, a lot of VCs put money behind founders. I think where you can see immaturity in the understanding of the space is when you see investments in business models that are not future-proof. And what this means is that you have business models that are focused on short-term solutions for, sh- for short-term problems. If you understand the big picture of climate change and the big issues that are ahead of us, you would be looking for su- supporting financially solutions that are looking into systemic change. Uh, and what this means is that you have a depth of understanding when you're offering a solution that goes through the decades, that goes through the at least five to 10 year plan. Uh, and this solution is going to be valid even then. Um, one example of this would be carbon offsetting. Uh, and we can go into greenwashing on that topic uh, after. Carbon offsetting is a legacy industry that has existed now for decades. And uh, this is an opportunity for those of you that don't know for you to calculate your emissions and then compensate the equivalent of that in carbon credits. And essentially, you've neutralized your existence because you have had negative impact on the planet, but someone has created a project somewhere else on the planet, uh, let's say planting trees, let's say uh, um, solar-powered cookstoves, that has eliminated the CO2 emissions uh, that have been created somewhere else or has compensated it. Business models that are solely relying on offsetting as the way to go forward don't necessarily understand the problem that they're solving because climate change is only going to be solved at the stage where we are at now with decarbonization, which means actively reducing your emissions on a one-on-one basis as an individual, as a business. And offsetting is just not enough for us to even be able to move the needle on reducing emissions significantly. So, uh, With this in mind, any business model that is solely focused on that shows a level of immaturity uh, and it might be that the founders really have a secret plan that is not announced yet (laughs) and they're working with the times because offsetting is obviously really uh, topical these days. But that's an example of where uh, if this is the long-term strategy, that's not future-proof. Right. Uh, Does it mean that uh, offsetting in general is bad or is it just something that will have to be phased out uh, gradually, in your opinion? You know, there's a, uh, if I can start on a more meta level, uh, philosophical uh, kind of way, somehow historically, because of this focus on money we've always had, uh, we have forgotten what is our true responsibility towards society, towards our communities. And offsetting is effectively social impact where you do an extra bit for someone else. Uh, the problem with the model is that at the moment it is used for someone to claim carbon neutrality while being able to market themselves as a sustainable company without doing anything else. So like they essentially invest into this visibility element. I think we at the stage of realization as a society, what really responsibility means and what really it means on a one-on-one basis, on a company level, on a governmental level, which if you get it right, would lead you to the point where you are the only possible actor of change. You can't outsource your responsibility and offsetting is effectively outsourcing your responsibility. The only person, the only entity that holds responsibility is you by yourself 
by the way you choose your suppliers, by the way you choose the people that join your company uh, and how they act, because of course you educate them about these things, by the way you engage your consumers and uh, enable them to be this actor of change. So if we go fast forward, uh, I think offsetting is going to be uh, either eliminated as an option or it's going to be purely transformed into social impact projects, which are necessary to exist, but are not the only way forward. Right. No, that makes sense. But at the same time, what I'm thinking about is in many cases with many organizations, there is basically no way that you can actually reduce your emissions to zero. And uh, since uh, uh, we just uh, all are very much used to this brand of being carbon neutral, uh, so basically what happens if uh, you cannot get to zero yourself and you can't do the offsetting anymore, so you are perceived as big offender? I think it's not about black and white in this particular situation. Uh, I believe carbon neutrality altogether should be eliminated as an option for someone to claim because it's just really misleading. Because exactly as you say, there's not even a way for someone to be, uh, you know, 100% compensated or 100% uh, reducing their emissions because you would always have a negative impact on the planet. Another element of issue is the fact that Calculating emissions at scope three, and for those of you that don't know, there's three levels of analysis of emissions, scope one, two, and three. And the first two are related to your immediate impact and scope three is related to your investments, your assets, your uh, the way your products are being treated as an end of life and so on. The way the data is collected, which we do on a daily basis, is just mind-blowingly complex because you need to collect it from third parties. When you speak about a company at the scale of Societe Generale, we're talking about asking the SMEs asking the companies that have got an investment about all of their projects, about every single impact that they have, which obviously is not an easy job. So carbon neutrality is incredibly misleading because it's based on averages. It's based on a lot of gaps of data that have been filled by some sort of uh, assumption. We as a company do not offer carbon neutrality to any of our clients. And that's been a purposeful choice because we stand behind the responsibility we have being this scientifically driven company. But going back to your question, it's not about, uh, you know, putting blame or saying, you know, oh, this is, you, you, you need to be like, uh, uh, only focusing on reduction. You cannot compensate. We need to focus on reduction today and as efficiently and as uh, fast as possible, uh, as companies, as individuals. With every single thing that we do, you know, uh, and it's not to put it on the citizens, it's not to put it on the governments, not to put it on the businesses, it's every single entity stakeholder's job. It's just that we should shy away from the marketing element before the results are there, because the journey ahead of us is really long, it's really complex, and it requires communal effort rather than uh, the taking the chances of being the one that claims carbon neutrality and then stands on the uh, kind of on the back line uh, waiting for others to do something else. Right. How about your own carbon footprint as a plan A? So plan A's carbon footprint is uh, managed by our software. We <laughs> 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 use our software to manage it and we are kind of navigating between uh, 10 to 20 tons a month, uh, which is not a lot, but there's always work to be done. Uh, and 
Now we kicked off uh, actually the decarbonization journey of Plan A. So we have a few scenarios to hit our net zero target as a company. And one of the first steps that we've done is that uh, we eliminated plastic from the company. So, for example, in the office, we have uh, a lot of Tupperware that you can take, go to like one of the restaurants nearby, uh, Rosenthaler Platz, where our office is, and take your food without basically creating additional waste. Another thing is that we got our um, office provider, the company, the, the company building uh, provider to switch to green energy. Um, and also we have a policy in the company to not travel on uh, trips that are under 400 kilometers uh, by plane. So these are the three tangible steps that we've implemented in Q1. Uh, and I'm happy to chat again in uh, three months or six months uh, to tell you what has happened with the rest. But we have quite of an aggressive uh, reduction team that has really ambitious targets. So <laughs> I think it's uh, it's going to be quite uh, quick of a journey because uh, there's someone that is policing us internally. <laughs> I wonder who that may be. It's uh, actually our reduction lead. He's a, he's a rock star as well. He uh, guided the German government on uh, their reduction target. So he knows this stuff really well. He comes from Potsdam Institute for Climate Change and uh, has been working for the last 12 years on decarbonization strategies. So he kicked it off before it was cool, which is really amazing because now he can benefit from all of the knowledge that he has acquired. Right. Yeah, of course. So it seems like for us, it's been uh, uh, like we normally talk once a year. So uh, started from 2019, it's been more or less uh, uh, the time frame. So let's say we talk uh, a year uh, from now, April or May 2022. What do you think will happen uh, with, uh, with you, with the company by then? And then we'll check. So uh, we would have uh, closed and announced our Series A. This is uh, kind of in the making uh, <laughs> in, in already to some extent. Uh, we also would have doubled the team and we would have expanded uh, across uh, a bit more in a stable manner across uh, Europe, Asia and the U.S. Great. This is great. So I am very much looking forward to talking to you again, hopefully in person uh, a year from now. Thanks a lot for joining tonight and uh, good luck with everything you're doing with Plan A. Thank you so much, Andre. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. And uh, I'm also looking forward to our chat that is uh, certainly coming uh, uh, soon. And I, I, I'm going to be having my fingers crossed that it's in person. Absolutely. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, follow us today wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Our audio engineering is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are, as usual, very welcome. Send them to podcast at tech.eu. I read every single email that comes to that address. I am Andrew Degler. This is TechEU Podcast, and I'm going to talk to you very soon. Bye-bye.